1: Hi there, and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. Now, if you've been listening recently, you'll know that I've been talking a little bit about China, Japan, and the Second World War, and the fact that uh, the kind of the popular perceptions of uh, China's role in the war are, uh, from a, a Western perspective anyway, um, fairly inaccurate for the most part. Um, And the position that China has as being one of the four main wartime allies largely gets overlooked. Um, The position in some kind of uh, Western perspectives of the Soviet role in the Second World War uh, gets downplayed. So it's it's hardly surprising that China is really seen as little more than a, a victim of Japanese aggression. When war films uh, and war sort of media uh, were produced in the uh, post-war era, um, the uh, American uh, war effort tended to focus on things like the Philippines and the battles in the Pacific, and the British often looked at the war in, in, in Burma. And obviously... A much bigger theatre than either of those things was the the Japanese war in China. Uh, countries are kind of uh, very much centred on their own narratives, and this is only natural and, and normal. But we need to, as, uh, as a kind of serious observers of history, try to look at it from a, a kind of a, a wider perspective. Which is why I'm, I'm returning to Rana Mitter's brilliant book, um, China's War with Japan. And he writes, the ability to reinterpret the story of China's war with Japan enables us to move away from melodrama. Instead, the war should be understood as a disruption to a much longer process of modernization uh, in China. By the 1930s, after nearly a century of foreign invasion, domestic strife and economic uncertainty. Both nationalists and communists wanted to establish a politically independent state with a government that penetrated throughout society, a population that was stable, healthy and economically productive. It was the nationalists who first tried to achieve these goals in the decade before the war broke out in 1937, but the Japanese invasion made it almost impossible for them to succeed. From tax collection to provision of food security, to the ability to cope with massive refugee flows, the problems were probably too great for any government to manage successfully. The war then marked the transfer of power to the communists, but there was nothing inevitable about the process. And for much of the early part of the war, before Pearl Harbor, there was an alternative, the possibility that Japan might win and that China would become part of a wider Japanese empire. The new new history of China's wartime experience must take account of the three-way struggle for modern China nationalist, communist and collaborationist so one of the things that um, we we kind of uh, ignored at our peril um, particularly when we look at the development of um, Soviet communism the revolution of 1917 and the Chinese rise to power In uh, 1949, is you know, the traditional standards of Marxist Leninist or Maoist historiography paint these things as inevitable parts of of kind of historical processes, but really there's nothing inevitable about either. Had it not been, and Mao acknowledged this himself, had it not been for the um, invasion of Japan, uh, by Japan, of China. The conditions for um, Maoist victory in 1949 probably would not have been there, even with Stalin's intervention. But that there we go into the realm of counterfactuals but it's just to say that um, there is nothing inevitable uh, about a regime of any stripe establishing it itself and the war created historic opportunities that Mao quite um, skillfully took up, um, advantage of by ultimately allowing the nationalists to do the bulk of the fighting and withholding forces for the the civil war that he knew would follow a Japanese defeat. Such a history, writes Ranomitter, must also restore China to its place as one of the four principal wartime allies, alongside the US, Russia and Britain. China's story is not just the count of the forgotten allied, of uh, the forgotten allied power, but of the Allied power whose government and way of life was most changed by the experience of war. Even the massive loss of life in Russia that followed the German invasion in June 1941 was less transformative than what happened to China in one fundamental sense. Russia was pushed to its ultimate test but did not break. It fought back and survived. In contrast, the battered, punch-drunk state that was Nationalist China in 1945 had been fundamentally destroyed by the war with Japan. Western condemnations of the Chinese war effort and the role of the nationalists in particular have been based on accusations that the regime was too corrupt and unpopular to engender support. A popular American wartime joke declared that the Chinese leader's name um, was really cash my check. The truth was more complex. The Europe First strategy meant that China was to be maintained in the war at minimum cost and Chiang was repeatedly forced to deploy troops in ways that served allied geostrategic interests but undermined China's own war aims. The crippled and unsympathetic nationalist regime that limped to peace in 1945 was not a product of blind anti-communism, refusals to fight Japan, a bizarre accusation considering the nationalists' role in resisting alone for four and a half years before Pearl Harbor, or foolish or primitive military thinking. The regime was overwhelmed by external attack domestic dislocation, and unreliable allies. So there is an awful lot written about the uh, role of China in the uh, China, India, Burma region. Um, The the two great books that I've often cited in in the past, uh, Harper and Bailey's Forgotten Wars and uh, Forgotten Armies, um, and that is really about Britain's Britain's war in Southeast Asia, but it, it's about much much more. And there was uh, deployment of uh, China uh, Chinese forces into um, parts of that theatre, uh, particularly uh, the Kuomintang the, the the Flying Tigers, the Kuomintang Air Force that was uh, equipped and trained by by the US. So. Often the British uh, and the Americans uh, were at odds with one another about strategy in Southeast Asia, but certainly the one thing they both agreed on was whether it, uh, suited, uh, whether it suited China was kind of irrelevant to both of them. China's war with Japan also repays re- um, re-examination because wartime conditions shape society in ways that have persisted even to the present day, writes Rana Constant air raids made it imperative that people should live and work in the same spot. It was dangerous to move around. After 1949, work units would impose a similar system across China, which would not be dismantled until the 1990s. Chinese society became more militarized, categorized, and bureaucratized during the harsh years of the war, which government struggled to keep, um, um, when government struggled to keep some kind of order in the midst of chaos. These tendencies, along with an almost pathological fear of disorder, continued to shape the official Chinese mindset. The greater demands that the state made on the society in wartime also created, created a reverse effect. Society began to demand more from government. Um, Something that, of of course, we see uh, around the world in the aftermath of the Second World War, that societies, individuals, come to see the state as a solution to uh, social and economic injustices and problems, and they uh, rightly view the state as having the power to to make seemingly impossible happen, which is... Essentially, what happens during the Second World War. Rana points out that um, during the Second World War, uh, the, the British, for example, um, had created demands for social welfare and health care that only a, a radical transformative agenda could fulfill after the war. However, The nationalists had created similar demands in China uh, and it was not within their ability to um, actually bring these transformations about, though it does appear in the eyes of many Chinese people to be something that the Communist Party could achieve. The nationalists really promised, and this is part of their, their downfall after 1945, they really promised to the Chinese people more of the same. They had no, they did, they weren't able to match um, their uh, military deployments with a kind of political deployments, and they weren't able to have uh, a meaningful political offer to the Chinese people, which is why suddenly the pendulum of popularity shifts towards the communists uh, in about 1946-47. In the early 21st century, writes Rahner China has taken a place on the global stage and seeks to convince the world that it is a responsible great power. One way in which it has sought to prove its case is to remind people of a time past, but not long past, when China stood alongside the other progressive powers against fascism, the Second World War. If we wish to understand the role of China in today's global society, we would do well to remind ourselves of the tragic Titanic struggle which that country waged in the 1930s and 40s, not just for its own national dignity and survival, but for the victory of all the allies, West and East against some of the darkest forces that history has ever produced. So Ryan Amitter goes on to discuss the fact that there the war between China and Japan 1937 onwards, had deep historical roots. It wasn't something that had simply kind of emerged from the ether in 1937. Um, the rivalry between the two states, the sort of the love-hate relationship between the two states um, had uh, roots back into the 19th century. He writes, the clash between China and Japan did not begin in 1937. It had been brewing for decades. The story of the first half of China's 20th century is a story of its love-hate relationship with its smaller island neighbour. The hatred became more prominent as the years went on, reaching its climax with the devastation visited on China's territory by the atrocities of the 1930s and 40s. But in earlier years, Japan had been mentor as well as monster. It, it was an educator. Thousands of Chinese students studied there. It was a refuge when Chinese dissenters, uh, such as the prominent revolutionary Sun Yat-sen, were threatened by their own government. They fled to Tokyo and it was a model. China's reformist elites looked to Japan to see how nation power could militarise, industrialise and stand tall in the community of nations. For good or ill, a large proportion of the history of the 20th century, China was made in Japan. It had become a commonplace in both countries that Japan and China was were as close as lips and teeth. So there was a, a kind of a strain of perhaps you could call it progressive nationalism in Japan in the uh, late 19th, early 20th centuries, uh, a a progressive Pan-Asianism that saw Japan as having achieved something that nearly all of Asia had failed to. It had resisted colonialism, it had modernized, it had proved itself to be a formidable military power defeating Russia in uh, 1905. And um, it had seen off the West in, in ways that, uh, India, China, um, the Philippines, and other places had, had had failed to do so. Here, the um, uh, Japanese um, thinkers, um, liberal and radical thinkers, thought was a, a kind of a, a, a blueprint of good, um, a, a good example that the rest of Asia, Asia could be shown, and particularly. Um, many Japanese looked on in horror at China and the way that China, since the 1840s, had been progressively defeated, quasi-colonized and humiliated. And the the, the, China, the Japanese were under no illusion that that was their fate as well. And it was ultimately, and if you read The Anxious Triumph by Donald Sassoon, he has an excellent way of discussing this, it was Ultimately, the the fact that Japan is run by a samurai class, a warrior class, that the transformation to a, a modern industrialized and militarized country is so successful because they believed that it was either that or their annihilation. So there were uh, plenty of uh, Japanese intellectuals, politicians, uh, and even military thinkers that thought that China would make the excellent student in the transition from feudalism to advanced industrialized uh, modernity, there would inevitably, even with the most enlightened and benign attitudes, have been colonial relations between China uh, and Japan. But this kind of Pan-Asianism, this this strand of Pan-Asianism, didn't really entertain the violent annihilatory racial um, pan-Asian imperialism that the uh, the, 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 the Japanese uh, military uh, and um, political classes embrace um, by the late 1930s. It, it's, it's quite different. Ranamita asks, if they were so close, how did the two nations come to fight one of the bloodiest wars in history? To understand the origins of their conflict, we must return to the late 19th century. To be Chinese during this period was to face a depressing range of political problems, floods, famines, and foreign invasions among them. And looming all over these challenges was the the greatest existential crisis in China's history. The country's elites had come to realise that they were no longer in charge of their own destiny. What had once been a self-confident civilization was now the victim of a new international system in which the industrialization and imperialism uh, in which industrialization and imperialism shaped the world that decline was doubly difficult for many chinese to understand because it seemed to have come about so quickly just a century earlier many observers in the west had felt that china's empire was surely the greatest on earth voltaire for one had criticized his native france by comparing it unfavorably with china For centuries, Chinese imperial dynasties had ruled over one of the most populous and sophisticated societies on earth. And For nearly a thousand years, China would use the system of competitive examinations to recruit government bureaucrats long before such a system operated in the West. The cultural influence of China was at its zenith during this period. The orderly conservative philosophy of Confucianism was underpinning Chinese statecraft, spread across East Asia, shaping societies beyond China's borders, including Japan, Korea and Southeast Asia. Chinese calligraphy, painting and metalwork became renowned across the region and the country developed a dynamic commercial economy. Goods such as exotic fruits from the warm South made their way to to the sophisticated palates of prosperous merchants in the cities of central and northern China. So the the question uh, for many Chinese as to how China had been brought so low um, was uh, the answer was really understood far better by by the Japanese who managed to avoid it. Again, the uh, Donald Sassoon theory is that the difference between China and Japan was that once again, Japan was ruled by a martial class. The samurai who were able to uh, galvanize the state's resources in the national defense and the chinese mandarin class the bureaucrats the civil servants who fear who, who dismissed the threat of um foreign power until it was too late also viewed the possibility of industrialization and other modern innovations as a threat to its own institutional power these were civil servants at their very worst not wanting things to uh, to to change um so the 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 um abject humiliation of china places it in a, a position where uh japan uh treated for centuries by china as a kind of a, an irrelevance is able to take the lead uh, as the 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 kind of the intellectually, technologically and industrially dominant power in Asia and the ability uh, in 1894 to defeat China, to seize control of Korea and Taiwan and to um, establish itself as as the um, dominant military power in Asia is based on Japan's uh, acceptance of the lessons of the West, uh, the, the, the lessons of Western industrialized modernity. Rana Mitter writes, The rulers of Japan, in contrast, began to feel vulnerable. Concerned about the arrival of Spanish and Portuguese missionaries eager to convert the Japanese to Christianity led to the Tokugawa family, who ruled on behalf of the emperor to impose a policy known as Kaikin, or Sakoku, from 1635. On pain of death, no Japanese were permitted to leave the country, and foreign trade was heavily restricted with Dutch, Chinese, and Korean traders permitted only onto the artificial island of Dejima in Nagasaki Harbour and on outlying islands. The Chinese court was much less concerned about the threat from abroad when the British diplomat Lord McCartney attempted to open up trade between China and Britain in 1793. The emperor sent him away empty-handed, declaring loftily, we have never valued ingenious articles, nor do we have the slightest need for your manufactures." Still, despite this imperial insouciance, China was highly integrated with the world economy and was very far from being closed or isolated. During the Qing dynasty, 1644 to 1912, the distinctive blue and white pottery of Xinjiang in China graced elegant homes in 18th century Britain and France. The spread of new world crops such as sweet potato and maize enabled Chinese to move west and cultivate large parts of the territory that had previously been considered barren. Between 1700 and 1800, China's population doubled from 150 to 300 million people. So the question of the uh, the origins of conflict between China and Japan are, are rooted in these two different historical journeys uh, and the different ways in which both powers responded to the challenge of uh, of, of Westernized modernity um, and the uh, idea that Japan would naturally, having harnessed and managed to uh, weaponize uh, Western modernity and, and military and industrial power, would naturally be the hegemonic state in Asia in the 20th century. The the irony, of course, is that following the war with uh, America, it's the United States that becomes, until the 1990s, the hegemonic power in uh, Southeast Asia. So there's a, a, a lot to explore here and a lot to unpack, and we're going to um, spend quite a lot of time over probably the rest of this year actually looking at China and Japan because um, it's it's greatly sort of uh, overlooked, and I and the the, the the tensions in that part of the world now and the long historical memories of of, of grievance and anger um, are. I think, going to shape the 21st century um, in ways that uh, uh, right now are perhaps hard to predict. There's a great deal of anxiety over what's happening in the Ukraine. But let's not take our eye off off Taiwan, because that, if if anything, is, is an even more potentially volatile situation and Japan demilitarized since the end of the Second World War, which has gradually been uh, moving back towards having its own fully functioning, if not uh, army, then um, uh, defense force, is preparing itself for the possibility of conflict with China uh, in the next decade or decades. Anyway, this is a history podcast, not a, a soothsaying one, so we'll, we'll, we'll steer away from that. Um, we're going to finish in a moment, but just to remind you guys um, that uh, you can check out the podcast, the, the vast podcast archive on, at explaininghistory.org. Um, and the, the if you come and find our Facebook group, there's always a kind of an interesting article or so um, going up there. Um And I'll be uh, blogging a few more articles in in the next few weeks on on the website. So do check us out. And obviously we rely on uh, Patreon for uh, a little bit of uh, backing from our our patrons. And we have a little little ad revenue as well, which you'll have heard in this podcast. But any and all donations, gratefully, gratefully appreciated. Anyway, thanks so much. We'll finish there and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. All the best. Thanks. Bye-bye.